With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and back with me today to recap Georgia's 31-24, far too close for comfort victory over Mississippi State, is my co-host, Curtis. And, Curtis, like, this was a really strange game, at least for me, because, I mean, beating an undermanned Mississippi State team who, coming into the game, like I would honestly make a really strong argument for them as the worst team in the league beating them by a touchdown, having to get a late stop to seal the deal in the fourth quarter. Like that shouldn't leave me as excited and as giddy as I am right now. And yes, I just used the word giddy. Uh, like to an outsider that, that maybe hasn't gone through what you and I and the rest of Dog Nation have gone through at quarterback this year and really offensively in general, going back to like probably the middle of last year, like that South Carolina game last year. Like to, that, to an outsider, it, it would – probably seem illogical to be this excited after what probably the neutral eye would likely seem to be a, a pretty uninspiring win. But the thing is like, like I've lived through the quarterback str- struggles and, and the offensive struggles and, and I've seen inadequate quarterback play. I've seen the lack of explosiveness offensively essentially waste what are otherwise two really, really talented rosters each of the past two years, including this season. So to me, and this is just me, to me, the emergence of JT Daniels, that compensates for everything else that we saw, everything else that happened on Saturday night. Now, maybe I'm on an island there. So, Curtis, I'm curious how you felt walking out of the stadium Saturday night. Um, I was angry with the defensive effort at times, and especially with the offensive line effort. They, you know, I was extremely disappointed in them. Um, I thought they were just uh, didn't come out like they should have. But overall, I mean, you had to be excited with the offensive from, from on the offensive play from the quarterback and the wide receivers. I thought they did a good job throughout the entire game. Um, and I left walking away thinking, if we hadn't made this change, we lose this game. Oh, so you're saying if Stetson Bennett starts this game or Dewan Mathis starts this game, we lose? I do. I do believe because they were going to force us to beat them throwing, and neither of those guys were going to win us that game throwing. Okay, so that's interesting that you look at it that way. See, that thought didn't cross my mind. The thought that crossed my mind was, oh, if JT Daniels had started against Florida or Alabama, then we would have won both those games. That's what that's I mean, of course I think that, but a lot of it, you know, we have all this hindsight where you can say, if you have this, you have that. But I'm in that moment, I I mean, of course, that thought crossed my mind, but I think too many times right now we have a lot of these armchair quarterbacks, and you and I were talking about it before the game. JT did good. You're going to hear all about it from. All these people, why didn't Kirby play him and all this stuff? And, you know, at this point, I just want to look at what we have going forward because we can sit here and beat the bush about how it should have been. We're going to talk about that later. We we kind of have to talk about it. I'm with you because, like, what I think what I texted you was, like, do you really think – maybe I asked my wife this. Either I texted you or my wife this. I can't remember. Um, But the question I posed is, like, do you really think that Kirby Smart wants JT Daniels to go out there and throw for 400 yards? That's the exact thing I said. Was that to you or was that to somebody else? Probably someone else, but you brought up okay. the fact that just what if he – you know, we're talking about depending on his play, what's the narrative going to be? Yeah, like, I guess I, it's probably my wife I said this too, but what I said to her, I guess Friday night was like, hey, like, do you really think Kirby Smart wants JT like, – he obviously wants to win. He wants him to play well, but do you really think he wants him to go out there and throw for 400 or 500 yards? Like that's what I said, 400 or 500 yards. 
And she was like, of course not, because then he's going to have to answer all those questions. Well, what, lo and behold, what happens? He throws for 400 yards. And it's like, oh, now Kirby. Like he was all, if we won the game and he played like moderately well, he was going to have to answer questions. But when he goes out there and literally puts up the best quarterback performance in the Kirby Smart era. Like, we don't win it without him. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Like, the frustration at times defense uh, with the defense, the offensive line, the run game. Sure, we'll talk about all that momentarily. But, like, to me, the, the, the emergence of JT Daniels just compensated for all of that. Like, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, I overlooked all the bad for the most part just because I was so giddy about having a quarterback that could throw a pass. Yeah, absolutely. Because to me, like, we've been saying this really all year, Curtis, but especially the past couple weeks after the loss of Alabama and Florida, we, we've been harping on the idea that until we get an answer at quarterback, we are never going to win a national title career smart. We can be good. We can be great everywhere else on the team, on the roster. But if we don't find that guy at quarterback, then we're not going to win a national title. I mean, think about all the frustration and the heat that was coming from the fan base after the Florida game and the despair, like, oh my God, like obviously the emotion after a game like that, but we're never going to win national titles. Like we're so far away from having an answer at quarterback. Like what are we going to do? Are we going to have an answer next year? Because that was the thought was like, not only are we not going to do anything this year, we're going to do anything next year because we don't have a quarterback. JT Daniels is going to transfer. We don't know. If well, not only that, but people guy. didn't believe Kirby would do, you know, make changes if that's what it took to win. And lo and behold, we have no run game on, yes, on Saturday. And they were okay throwing the ball 38 times over over 400 yards. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Also, absolutely. That's Let's take it there. That you have to take away from it, the fact that we were willing to take – I mean, yeah, we, we tried to run the ball at times because you still had to have the threat of it. Um, but even then, you know, we tried to – or we stuck with the passing attack, and that's very unlike Kirby also. Yeah, absolutely. And let's let's talk about the passing game here. Because clearly, to me, the story of this game was the emergence of JT Daniels, as I've laid out for you. And look, yes, as I said, I know it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows against Mississippi State, and we will get to all that later in the show. I assure you we will talk about that as well. But with all the focus on all the consternation surrounding the quarterback position all year long, like, Curtis, we simply have to start there today. That's, that's something that we have to do. We've got to start here. And you, you guys know the story. JT Daniels gets his long-awaited, long-yearned-for, Starley's yearned-for on the part of the fan base. And he responds with the first 400-yard passing game of the Kirby Smart Air, going 28 of 38, 401 yards passing, 10.6 yards per attempt, music to my ears, four touchdowns, zero interceptions. By any measurement, an absolutely stellar first start in a Georgia uniform for JT Daniels. So, Kurt, let's not beat around the bush here. Have you seen enough to say that Georgia has now finally found its man at quarterback? Oh, yeah, I think I've definitely seen enough. Um, I mean, especially considering we also take into account this guy is truly just now starting to get cleared, starting to get comfortable, um, you know, get mobility in his knee and his first game back also, and yet he was able to go out there and do that. So the more, And you saw it too, the first couple of drives, I mean, he wasn't shaky, but you could tell he wasn't comfortable. But the more he got comfortable, the better he looked throwing the ball. And so you're sitting there thinking, okay, give him more and more experience, more and more reps. Imagine what this guy can do. Yeah. Did you hear that post-game press conference? I loved it. I thought the guy had a lot of good things to say. Dude, he became my favorite player of all time. No, no, I'm just kidding. But he, dude, my, like, fav- my favorite was polished? the comment about um, Burton and Pickens, like, don't recruit these guys if you're not going to throw the ball to them. Like, and then pretty much like, I'm going to make you stop me if you want to try to stop them one-on-one. I don't know if I've ever heard a Georgia player utter words that made me more excited than just to hear him say that. Like, you guys sitting here, go, go look it up on YouTube. I'm sure you can find it there somewhere. But see if you can find the JT Daniels press, post-game press conference. And, I mean, it was about 15 minutes long. It was, and he was just really polished. Um, he's, he, he was in control there. And I know it's a really small sample size, but he was just really impressive in that setting. He was calm, controlled, poised, confident, very well-spoken complimentary of his teammates, all the things that you would want from a quarterback. He was very forward. He was very sharp. It was just everything that you wanted to see in a starting quarterback in that setting. That's some hard pointed questions too about like his health, why he hadn't been yeah. playing. So, I mean, he wasn't tossed off balls either. No, I mean, he seemed very grateful and appreciative of, of the opportunity and he was complimenting his, his teammates, which of course, like guys do that. I mean, it's, it's a press conference, but I like, you're exactly right. When he was talking about like, the receivers, like when you got guys like Jermaine Burton and, and George Biggins, like if you don't want to give them the ball, then don't recruit them. Why are you recruiting them if you're not going to give them the football? And I was like, oh, damn, he just basically said what every Georgia fan's been thinking for two plus years now. 
so that was, that was just, I mean, kind of like, oh, whoa, whoa. I wonder if he's going to get pulled in the principal's office for that one. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was it was great to see. Now, obviously, this was the best performance of the year from our quarterbacks, like hands down, not even close. Like, I, honestly, like it, it was. Not even from a statistical standpoint. I think you could say this is the best performance by a Kirby Smart quarterback ever, right? Yeah, easily. I mean, he, not only did he throw for a lot of yards, but he, he was very – um, through for a high percentage completion rate and things like that. So, I mean, you got to look at the whole totality of it, and I thought he was, you know, the best we've seen. Yeah, I, I think at least in this one game setting. But let me play devil's advocate here. I have to do this. I don't want to be uh, compl- again. I, I don't want to be the guy that's sitting here and just blowing sunshine up. You know, you know what? And like, I, I don't want to do that. So let me at least explore the other side of this curve. How do we know this isn't just a one-time deal? against what was an undermanned Mississippi State team. I mean, even Grayson Lambert, once upon a time in 2015, against an SEC opponent, went 24-25 for 330 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, set a single-game record, SEC, I think in the NCAA single-game record for completion percentage. Even Grayson Lambert did that, and we know how the rest of his career turned out. So how do we know that isn't one just one of those kind of one-game random things that happens and this is not really necessarily indicative of what Daniels is going to be moving forward and after. The thing that really stood out to me was just the throws he was making. It's not like he was getting easy. I mean, there were some easy throws where he did a good job, but I also thought he did a good job on his checkdowns to get into the easy throws and get rid of the ball. But it was the way he threw the ball. Um, the two throws, I mean, of course everyone thinks about the deep balls, but the two throws that actually stand out most to me are the uh, the first touchdown pass to Jermaine Burton, that touch pass over the linebacker. That was a beautiful mm-hmm. throw, something that we hadn't seen from Stetson or anyone really with that type of touch. Even Jake Fromm struggled with touch like that over the middle. That was one of his weakest areas other than deep ball was he did not have great touch um, with his passes. So that throw, and then the throw to Demetrius Robertson, that throw was incredible to me. On third down that, on the sideline, kind of like the back shoulder throw? Yeah, yeah, by the sideline. The way he, over, he threw it over the linebacker but got it down um, – in front of the DB and that in his throws like that to just make you see, okay, this guy has ridiculous skill set, and it's not just the easy throws he's making. Okay. Both those are great plays. You're exactly right. I, and I love both those and you can make a strong argument for those. What I thought honestly was his most impressive throw of the night was the ball that wasn't completed. It was the ball. It was the, the pass to Pickens in the end zone right after Kiaris Jackson drops one. Remember what I'm talking about? He and not, and not only that, but that was a, it wasn't just a step up in the pocket. No, he did uh, um, a, you know, a pivot pivoted out of it something that you weren't really expecting from someone still coming back from the knee injury and then steps up in the pocket so I was more impressed by what he did ex- evading it and then like you were saying making that throw on the dot yeah I mean he he spins out of pressure and then has to make a sharp cut to his right to evade another defender and then gets his body set quick enough to throw an absolute dart on the money about 40 yards about 35 40 yards down the field right in George Pickens hands and Pickens drops it I, it, it was a, it would have been a tough play, but he put the ball. But even though you don't see that from Georgia, I believe that's George's first ever drop on a ball that he got his hands on at Georgia. And uh, that I, it might be. Uh, and that uh, and what happened? Well, that, that was Kiaris too. That was Kiaris's first drop. So he had two somewhat guys who don't drop the ball normally. Yeah, and on that play with Pickens, I think what happened it was it wasn't the guy that was on him. It was the guy. It was the other safety coming from the opposite side there that he saw coming. I think when he saw that safety coming, he's like, "Oh, I might get destroyed here." and kind of just pulled up ever so slightly on that. But, like, to me, that ball wasn't completed. It should have been, but it wasn't. I think that was the most impressive play I saw from J.K. Daniels all night in a, in a, in a night full of impressive plays and impressive And, see, and that's the thing. It, like, if you go back and watch Grayson Lambert when he did that stuff in South Carolina, a lot of it was those easy intermediate all throws. RPOs. Yeah, we're all RPOs, you know, intermediate throws, nothing downfield, where a lot of J.T.'s yards were literally big chunk plays just throwing the ball down the field. And that's one of the things that has me so excited about this is that uh, – where's my number? So, yeah, so, guys, the explosiveness in our offense is something that we have Yeah, people all year have been complaining that we haven't had explosive plays. Wow, all of a sudden we put a quarterback in who can throw the ball and you have multiple 40-yard-plus completions. And you hear people talk about our receivers aren't at the Alabama or the Florida level. And I'm not saying they're at the Alabama. or I, I think our receivers aren't that far from Florida. Now, we don't have a Kyle Pitts. I'll say that. We don't have a Kyle Pitts. I mean, Pitts. we're young at the receiver, too. They have a lot They right. have a lot of experienced guys. Yeah, they have a lot more experience than we do. And look, we're not at Alabama's level at receiver. I get that. But our receivers have been running wide open all year long, and we haven't had a, a guy that could consistently hit them. Look, I'm not saying that Stetson didn't make any good throws. Stetson played well 
in his time as a starting quarterback. He did some good things. He helped us win some games. He made some throws, but he also left a lot of throws out there, some throws that could have changed the game against the two biggest opponents on our schedule, the two games that we had to win, at least we had to beat Florida. And he left some throws out there. He made some throws in that game. Now, he got hurt, and a lot of that's not necessarily on him with the injury in the Florida game, but especially against Alabama. There were receivers running open down the field for big play opportunities, and we just did not hit enough of them in the biggest games of the year. So it's really nice to have a guy, at least in one game, that could hit those throws and actually bring some explosiveness to our offense, some much-needed explosiveness to our offense. And here's a number to back up the explosives, guys. So through the first six games of the year, we had eight pass plays of 30-plus yards. We had, with JT Daniels last night, four pass plays of 30-plus yards in one game against the best defense, statistically the best defense that we have faced all year. And, yeah, I know they were missing some guys. I get that, sure. But still, four play. Actually, I think there were four plays of 40-plus. I think they were all 40-plus yards. So yeah, at least four- Touchdown passes of 40 yards plus that big one. To, or He had yeah. two long ones to uh, Burton, the one that yeah. was a penalty, and then the one down the sideline. Yeah, I was just I was just looking at 30-plus yards, but I think every one of those I'm counting as 30-plus yard throws were all actually 40-plus yards. So we had eight pass plays of 30-plus yards coming into this game through the first six weeks, of the, for I guess first six games, not first six weeks, but first six games of the year. And then this one game, four plays of 40-plus yards in one game by a guy who has not started a football game. Has not played in a football game, an actual football game, since August 31st of 2019. 14 months. And he comes in there and does that in his first game. Again, statistically, yes, I know they were missing some guys. I get that. But still, statistically, they've been missing guys for a while, actually. And statistically, the best defense that we have faced all year. Not an elite defense, but a good defense. And statistically, the best defense that we have faced all year. And he did that. And yeah, it was nice to have all receivers back. That certainly helps. But you mentioned the uh, the accuracy, the explosiveness. To me, those are the two big things. And like going back to the question of like, how do we know this is not just a one time deal? Like, we don't know it's not a one time deal. But there's some there are some things that give me confidence that it's not. Especially because like you you know you mentioned it. A lot of these plays have been there to be made. So it's not like the all the other stuff was a one time thing because the plays have been out there. Um, and seeing what JT did, especially like the fact that this is his first game, he was, had his adrenaline going, wasn't truly comfortable, yet was still out there with the accuracy and everything. Yeah. And for me, like what gives me some some hope moving forward is that, okay, we this wasn't the first time we've seen this guy do this. Like he, now, as a freshman at USC, he wasn't great every game, but we saw him do it at times at USC as a true freshman that was actually been a senior in high school. He has the pedigree. Okay, former Gatorade Player of the Year. I know that doesn't mean anything at the college level, but we've seen the guy do it. He almost beat a Notre Dame team, uh, he almost like a bad USC team to upset a Notre Dame team that went to the college football playoff a couple years back. He has the pedigree. We've seen him do it as a true freshman in a different conference. I get that. And then you have the accuracy, the explosiveness, which have both been an issue for us. Okay, now there were, he was 28 of 38, 10 incompletions, but I saw at least four drops and at least two batted balls. There might have been a third batted ball in there, but I know there were at least two batted balls. So at the very least, that six of the ten completions that were not on him. This guy was lights out. I mean, I, I'm I just went I just got done going back and rewatching the game, and even then I'm like, okay, well, what throws did he make that were like inaccurate on his part? I don't I didn't really find any to be honest with you. Other than that throw that probably should have been intercepted, I think that was on the first drive, right, Kurt? Yeah, and that was the second throw, and he even said that that was the best thing that happened to him that because he threw a bad throw and got hit. And he said, and if you watch his press conference, he says after that he got up and was like, "Okay, I'm playing football again." And that was actually, you know, sometimes they say it, like going back to Mathis. I hate to say it, but when he got his first hit, he shut up. Like he, 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 yeah, he got shook. He wasn't confident. All of a sudden, he it took him out of his game. But JT gets hit, and all of a sudden he's like, "Okay, I'm playing football again. Like let's do it." Yeah, and that was a poor throw, a poor decision. He he owned that, he accepted that, and it was. But other than that, after that point, like I don't remember any throws. I was like, wow, that's a poor throw or that's a poor decision. I just don't remember. I'm not, and look, I, I I don't know what all what our play calls are or what the reads are in every given play, so it's tough for me to know that for sure. But just based on like my naked eye watching it, knowing what we know, I didn't see after that throw anything that I would say was on him, to be honest with you. Uh, and the, not even just the completion, but the the ball placement. There was a throw to uh, Fitzpatrick. But even the throw to Pickens for the touchdown. Holder. All the throws. If his guy doesn't catch it, no one does. Yeah, just stuff that we have a lot the, of the things. Throw to that Pickens, we've not seen. That, that's a throw that takes time to develop because he threw that before George turned around. So you have to have trust that he's going to be there. Yeah. 
We just saw a lot of things from him that we have not seen from a Georgia quarterback in the Kirby Smart era. And that's extraordinarily exciting for me moving forward. You mentioned it. The moment, another thing that gives me confidence that this was not just a one game thing, it's an undermanned Mississippi State defense. The moment wasn't too big for him. Again, this, this guy hasn't played, he hasn't played a football game since August 31st, 2019. The moment was not too big. He wasn't pressing, completed multiple huge third downs, including a huge third and 20 after two consecutive drop touchdown passes, comes right back, flushes it, and delivers a third touchdown pass. We saw him move around some of the pocket. Now, like I think there's what's one area he needs to continue to improve, which is getting more mobile and more confident in that knee. But I don't think he was really playing scared with the knee. I didn't see that. He didn't play scared. You could see him limping some. That you yeah. know, I mean, I, people want to say Kirby shouldn't have, like, should have been playing him the whole year. You could see th- – he was still a little ginger on that knee. And there was a, in, in that, I think it was the first quarter too. Maybe it was the same drive where he had that poor throw or that the poor decision was almost picked, probably should have been picked, uh, where he gets sacked. I think it was on that same drive. And he kind of just, he looked kind of, he looked flustered on that play. Like he just kind of like, he was like running around, like, I don't know where to go, and just kind of went down. And it's like, oh, uh, but then he certainly recovered from that and he was a different guy moving forward. So you just want to see him continue to get more comfortable and confident in that knee. Um, and look, I will also say a big part of his success in this game was also a function of how Mississippi State was playing us defensively. They were playing very aggressive, dying up pressure time and time again, playing with some like zero coverage consistently. Now, you might see a team do it once or twice here and there in a game. I mean, they did it multiple times throughout the game, and every single time they did, he made them pay. And I think they were doing that because they were see, trying that's to the thing. You know, I mentioned it earlier. I thought we would have lost if we hadn't made a quarterback change because – you saw Florida and all these other teams have been giving us that, forcing us we to, able to hit beat them with yeah. throw, and we haven't. Have not been able to hit it. You're absolutely right. So uh, they played aggressive, and, and, and that, so he, he had opportunities, I guess is what I'm saying, that a lot of quarterbacks don't see zero coverage like that consistently. And I think they were trying to make him move in the pocket because they weren't sure how, how healthy the knee was. But I'll, I'll give our line credit. They didn't do a great job in the run game, but they did a great job protecting him in, in, in pass pro. For the mo- There were a couple sacks, but for the most part, as much pressure as they were bringing, they did a really good job of giving him time and allowing him to make those plays on the field. And you're right. Like If, you've, if you're Mississippi State and you've watched us play, why would you do anything else against us until somebody – until we do something to make you stop doing that, until we prove you otherwise. And, well, J.T. Daniels clearly did that. Um, but it was just so great to see him after like, – actually, someone actually hitting all those wide receivers, as you were mentioning there, Curtis, someone actually hitting all those wide receivers that were running open against Bama and Florida that could have changed the game if we just hit a couple of those guys to actually see that we have a quarterback that can hit those. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't tell you the joy and the happiness that puts into my heart right now. I cannot explain – fully how good that makes me feel and look he's not going to throw for 400 yards every game like let's just go ahead and say that he's not going to do that. He, he he might come out against South Carolina next week and 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 make some mistakes that's very likely honestly but to see that we have a guy that can at least finally put teams opposing defenses in legit run pass conflict in a way that we haven't seen since probably 2018 that is um that is something that just brings a lot of joy to my life because it gives me hope for what we can. I mean, look, the rest of this year, like we're just trying to build momentum for next year, right? We understand that. But it just brings me hope for what we can be next year. And I hate that we're in that position where we have to be talking about next year with a couple games left on the schedule, but that's kind of where we are right now. And we've got to start thinking about getting ourselves in the best position possible to be able to make a run next year. And building momentum late in the season is a way to do that. Yeah, because you want to see guys like Jermaine Burton and them take the next step because next year, I mean, it made and watching our receivers made me super excited thinking, all right, next year you'll more than likely have George back for his junior year, Burton and um Kiaris back, hopefully Kiaris back, and then Rosemary would be back healthy. All those things I'm just sitting there like my mouth is watering going seeing what we saw with JT and the, the way the receivers are playing, thinking, okay, we could actually have a pretty dang good passing attack next year. Yeah. If, if we can if we can just keep JT on the roster and hopefully like him start the rest of the year, we'll keep him on the roster. And if he can continue to get healthier and grow with this team. And the other thing is, guys, like he hasn't had many reps at all. So for the past two weeks since the Florida game, he's had almost no reps at all with the number one offense with these receivers. Very, very few. And to come out there and play like they did in that setting, like think about what that mean, could mean moving forward. Like you mentioned, you get guys like, Rosamy back. You get guys like Dominic Blaylock, Arian Smith. Who we have, uh, he got in for a couple of snaps in this game. And, and like that. He got in. They didn't throw it to him, but man, the DBs couldn't stick with him. 
Um, he can move, dude. He can absolutely move. I'm really excited about what he can bring in the future. So I'm really and excited. He's a lot man. Bigger than field, you realize he's a lot bigger. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we just, we have some weapons. Like that's thing, we've had weapons this year. Some, yeah, the receivers were young and they made some mistakes early in the year. They, they've had their growing pains. But the fact is, receivers have been running wide open all year long and we just haven't had a guy that's consistently hitting them. And now maybe he won't consistently hit them moving forward. But in this one game, based off what we've seen, he did that. And uh, I don't see any reason to think that he's not if, – if guys are running open, we scheming them open like we have with, Tom Mung, with Todd Munkin, because I've told you guys, I think we have the answer at offensive coordinator. That's one big piece of this puzzle that we have the answer to. And we got the, I think we've got the receivers now. We've got the running backs. We just had to have the quarterback. And I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that JT Daniels can continue to do these things when he's given those opportunities. Now, again, he's not going to throw for 400 yards every game. He's going to throw some interceptions. He will take some chances. Uh, but – I think this is a guy that can activate our offense, introduce some explosiveness into our into our attack, which we haven't seen in a year and a half, man. So it's exciting. It's definitely exciting for me to think about what we can do moving forward. So, Kurt, last question here on JT. Is it fair to assume that he is the starter? Yes, yeah, Kirby said that is yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I know you don't want to talk about this, Chris. I know you don't, but I know a lot of our listeners. I've got a lot of questions about this. And I think we have to have to address it here. So if, if JT is the guy at quarterback, and like I said, just put the best quarterback performance of the Kirby Smart era against a good Mississippi State defense, against statistically the best defense we faced this year, we have to address the obvious elephant in the room. How much criticism do Kirby Smart and Todd Munkin deserve for sitting him on the bench for the first 60% of the season, including the two biggest games of the year that ultimately decided our fate? I don't think you're really criticizing, especially for the Alabama game. And, Maybe the Florida game, but like I mentioned, you can see he's still favoring that knee, so it shows he's still not 100% healthy. Um, so I think people need to take that into account. Like, I think people will be more mad if they put him out there and he got hurt, and then you, you don't have any chance with him ever. But you'll have everyone who will look in hindsight and say, well, look what he done, or look what he did. He should have been playing. But I just don't think that's fair because, like I said, you could see that he was still struggling with that knee and that it's not 100% healthy. So to to say, I mean, Alabama game, I don't think there's any reason to say that he should have been playing at that time. Maybe the Florida game, but I also don't know if the Florida game would have been any different because people aren't talking about the fact that we were also juiced up by the return of George Pickens at wide receiver. Uh, against Florida, we had Kiaris and Burton, yes, but we did not have George. That's true. We didn't have George, and that certainly impacted that game. But the fact is, even without George Pickens, Todd Munkin still had guys running wide open down the field in that game for big play opportunities, and we just didn't hit them. And if there's anything that we saw from JT Daniels on Saturday night is that if guys are running open down the field, he can hit them. But as to how much criticism Kirby Smart and Todd Munkin deserve when it comes to not playing JT Daniels until Game 7... Here's what I'll say. Uh, I don't necessarily fully disagree with you. I think for the first half of the year, I, I'm with Kirby. I don't think it was his fault. I think Kirby's put in a tough spot here because as Daniels even admitted himself, we all know he wasn't clear for the Arkansas game. So what that meant is that Dwan Mathis had to get reps with the ones leading into that first game for the, for the last couple of weeks of fall camp because we you can't invest time in a quarterback that you're not sure if he's going to be cleared or not. You just don't know. So you can't invest time. So that what that meant is it put him behind because he was not getting the reps. It was Mathis getting the reps. And then Mathis, I don't, I don't want to say he went to bed, but Mathis didn't perform well in week one. And so JT Daniels was not an option. He was there in Arkansas because we were hoping he was going to get clear while we were there, but he didn't. So the only option is Stetson Bennett to come in off the bench. So Stetson comes in, he plays well. So we're not going to go back to Mathis. So moving forward, even though now you have Daniels as clear, but Daniels is behind the eight ball because he hasn't been getting those reps. He's, he's a couple weeks behind. And he's still not 100% healthy. He's clear, but he's the mobility is – it doesn't seem like it's there. And I've been told from people behind the scenes that that is indeed the case. So in that, with all that in, in the picture here, we go with Stetson Bennett after Arkansas because we're still not sure about JT's mobility. And then we win a couple games with Stetson. You beat Auburn, and Auburn, people think Auburn is good at that time. And so you, you stick with him. And then you go to the Alabama game. And up until the Alabama game, Curtis, you're right. Like we had no reason to bench Stetson going into the Alabama game. Like he'd played well enough for us to win those games and be some teams that people thought were pretty good at that time. So I'm with him until the bye week after the Alabama game. I think after the Alabama game, it's clear that Stetson Bennett was not the guy. JT gets the brace off, right, which was which was hampering his mobility. 
We have time to get him reps during the bye week, which we do from all accounts. Even Kirby himself has admitted we started to give JT a lot more reps during that bye week. But still, we come back out, out of the bye week with Stetson against Kentucky. And maybe I can I can forgive that because, you know, you won't give JT another week and you can beat Kentucky with Stetson. Okay, fine. But more unforgivably, he comes out, in my opinion, with, with Stetson Bennett against Florida. I That's where Kirby loses me in this situation. I think the first half of the year, I'm with him. I get it. It makes sense. He was in a tough spot. He was a victim of circumstance. I, think, I don't think that's on him. But when you look at the Florida game, all of a sudden, three days later after the Florida loss, all of a sudden, JT Daniels is now getting reps with the, with the first team in preparation to start against Missouri three days after the loss to Florida. So don't tell me that he wasn't ready to start that game. Don't tell me he re- wasn't ready to play that game. That, that doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense. And then I mean, even if you still think, okay, well, you know what? We're, Stetson, we're, we're going to go with Stetson. We're going to give him the start. Well, Stetson gets hurt. What's maybe even more unforgivable in that game is if JT's ready to play and he's going to start the next week, don't tell me that Dwan Mathis is a better option to come in off the bench once Stetson Bennett got hurt. Are you with me there, Curtis? Yeah, I do question the fact that Juwan was number two because if he's able to start all of a sudden getting first-team reps three days later, then maybe you don't want to put him in there because he doesn't have the teams with the first or doesn't have reps with the first team at all. You don't want to throw him into the fire right away. But you could at least say he's better, a better second option than what we've ever gotten out of Juwan Mathis. It doesn't you, seem to really be with. Yeah, and maybe the coaches want to say, "Well, we we, we want to give Mathis one more chance to see what we have because we believe in his potential long term." But I'm sorry, man, like. Really, we, what we've seen Dwan Mathis is not even close to being ready. And what I've heard behind the scenes is that he's doing that in no better than potential. Yeah, and like what I've heard behind the scenes is that Dwan Mathis hasn't really been doing that much better in practice. I think what happened with with that Florida game is that Mathis. Uh, my understanding, what I've been told, is that out, after the Kentucky game, Mathis went in because you might remember this, Chris. There's some talk about there's some chatter about him potentially going to the transfer portal after the Kentucky game. And uh, I was told that he went in the coach's office and met with Kirby. It was like, I, you know, I, I, I want to play. And, it was, and there was some conversation about, like, what's my future here? And I think that might have been a Hail Mary to try to keep him on the team. I, th- I, I really do think that in some way influenced, you know what, well, this guy's thinking about transferring. JT's not completely healthy yet. Let's give him a shot. Uh, he was our guy to start the season anyway. I, and that's just me throwing something out there. I don't know. But it's just, it's just strange how that happened there. But, but just don't tell – that's where they lose me. Just don't tell me that JT Daniels wasn't – it, it, even if he wasn't the best option to start the game, don't tell me he wasn't the best option to come off the bench when Stetson gets hurt against Florida. And maybe we don't beat Florida. We still don't beat Florida if he comes in off the bench. But I think he would have given us a shot. He would have given us a fighting chance, a much better chance than what Mathis did in that game because there were guys running open even when Mathis was in that game. And we still had a chance. Like Let's not forget, we were one drop pick six from being in that game, being down a touchdown that game. If, J- if JT comes in there and plays anywhere remotely like he did against Mississippi State, and Florida's defense, guys, isn't good. Their secondary is not good. I think we would have had a chance to win that game. I'm not saying for sure. I think he would at least give us a better chance. That's where I have an issue. That's my promise. Because three days later, he magically got better, good enough to be able to, to be in line to start the next week. Don't give me that. Don't give me that. Don't insult my intelligence. Like that's just that's just not accurate. That's not accurate. So I, I'm with Kirby for the and, and Munkin. I don't want to put it all on Kirby. Munkin has a big part to do with this as well. Yeah, because I, I think I people everyone wants to blame Kirby, but I think Kirby is trying to give Munkin full control. And if he's over here telling Munkin who to put in at quarterback, that's not going to make Munkin happy either. Yeah, I think Munkin has a lot more influence on who's starting at quarterback than people want to believe. I think it's just popular to, to, to rag on Kirby because of the whole Fields thing, which is fine. He has an in, he has an in, he has input, obviously, but I really think it's Munkin's choice at the end of the day with Kirby's input. I think they, they probably make it together. I think Munkin might have the veto power there. That's just me. Who knows? And I do also want to make sure to be fair to Kirby Smart and the coaching staff here. These guys work so incredibly hard. They put so many hours into this. And yes, I know they get paid handsomely for it. I get it. But guys, like they live this, they breathe, they put everything they got into it, like insane hours into this. And they want to win more than anyone out there. They, they want to win more than all of us. Trust me on that. They do. And they know far more about football than, than you or I do, Curtis. I, I'm mad enough to admit that. I, I feel like I, I, I have a good grasp on the game, but not to the level that these guys do. And I also don't have as much information to operate off of as they do. I, I just want to put that out there and be fair. But that doesn't mean that we can't sit here and take the information that we do have and some of the information that we've gotten from the coaching staff themselves and make judgments based off what we are seeing. Because as much as Kirby Smart has done for our program, I think he's the best thing that's happened to our program 
in a long, long, long time. And I appreciate so much everything he's done to get our program where it is right now. And I know we're not exactly where we want to be. We haven't gotten over that final hump, but we've gotten closer than we have any time in the past 40 years under Kirby Smart's leadership. So he's done an incredible job, but that doesn't mean that he is above reproach and it doesn't mean that he can't be criticized fairly at times when justified. And look, I know that he and the rest of the coaching staff truly are doing what they think is in the best interest of this program winning. I just don't know if I necessarily agree with how the quarterback situation was handled since the Alabama game. Again, I think leading up to the Alabama game, I think he was largely a victim of circumstance with JT Daniels and the injury. And obviously, of course, with Jamie Newman opting out. I mean, that blindsided us from everything that I've that I've heard. But after the Alabama game, that's where I think the criticism really starts to become more fair. Because I think Daniels, from what I understand, was much closer to being healthy. And certainly against Florida. I, I, if Daniels can play three days later, be, be taking reps of the ones as your presumptive starter moving forward, then why couldn't he have played in the most important game of the year? Um, but anyway, let's move off the quarterback. We talked a lot about that, Curtis. Uh, regardless, we can't change the past. And at least, the very least, we all feel better about the quarterback position. Um, at least I feel better about the quarterback position probably since the day that Justin Fields committed a couple years back. Uh, but as I said earlier in the show, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. I know that Daniels outshined everything else, at least for me. But we did have some issues elsewhere. Curtis, we had eight yards rushing in this game. Um, even if you want to take sack yards out of the equation, our three backs combined for 33 rushing yards on 18 combined touches. And then defensively, we give up 358 yards and 24 points to a team, an offense that hasn't put up 300 yards of offense since October 3rd. So, Curtis, of those two issues, the, the lack of a run game and the defense, which one of those concerns you the most coming out of this game? Um, the lack of a run game concerns me the most. The defense, a lot of it had to do with the defensive scheme, which I wasn't happy with, but I understand the scheme. But uh, some of the execution by players frustrated me the most. Um, Mark Webb, guy works hard. He's hard work and everything. He can't cover anyone. He's absolutely an incredible liability. I've said it for a while. I've always believed he was a liability. In the back, in the defensive backfield, but the problem is we have no other, no one that's doing anything better, um, you know, with Stevenson and people like that. But honestly, the play of the offense line bothered me the most because towards the end it just looked like a complete and total lack of effort, especially from people like Justin Schaefer who just looked like they were just standing around and just going through the motions. That was the worst performance I've ever seen by Justin Schaefer. In my I life. mean, I've been hard on him, and you know, a lot of it has to do with what. Mississippi State was doing was, you know, shooting the gaps and stunting. And that plays into exactly why I've always been so hard on Justin Schaefer because he plays with terrible pad level. And that's why you have trouble beating these people that are stunting on you and, and shooting the gaps because you can't get under them. Yep. Nailed it there. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not freaking out over either one. I know a lot of people are. Well, I'm more playing. angry with a play of the offensive line, the fact that we didn't change anything. Because all the time, well, our offensive line may be doing well and moving the ball, but yet we'll still rotate guards in, like put Warren Erickson or other people in. But yet when we were struggling, there was no change at all, which is what I was really confused by. Yeah, that, that was interesting. I, I was I, Honestly, at times I was, especially late in, the, late in the game, potentially you know when it was still very much a game, looking for some different guys to come in there and get a shot, but it wasn't happening. But I'm – like I'm, I'm not excited. About, I'm not happy about the way the offensive line played, and I'm not freaking out over over the defense or the offensive line. I'm more so a freshman. I mean, at least the line. defense tackled well. That was the one thing I, I that I did like. That yeah, we were playing that soft zone, but at least they were tackling well when they got to the ball, which is something like I can live with that more so than I can a lot of missed tackles against. That the was team my key to the game coming coming into the game. That was my key to the game. I don't know if people realize this, this. It's not really a vertical passing team unless you play coverages that allow them to throw the ball down the field, like 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 uh, LSU did in, in week one. But uh, this they, they had over 1,000. Coming into this game, they had over 1,000 yards. They're one of nine teams with over 1,000 yards of uh, 1,000 yards after the catch. That's what they do. And we and it's because teams, they throw the ball short intermediate range, and they find those holes, they find that space, and teams don't tackle well. But we had, we had to tackle well in this game. And we did a really good job of that for the most part. I'm not saying we didn't miss a tackle at all. We did. We missed a couple. But I thought overall, we did a really good job of rallying the football and, and getting those guys down the ground. But I'm, I'm probably most concerned about the offensive line, more so than the defense, because, uh, look, part, you mentioned it, Chris. Part of the struggles with the run game 
was a function of what they did defensively. They played us very aggressively against the run. They were bringing a lot of middle pressure. They were stunting and twisting like madmen up front. Like you just don't see game in and game out what Mississippi State was doing up front. And they don't even do that game in and game out. You could clearly tell that their their strategy was like, hey, yeah, we're outmanned this game. We have nothing to lose. Let's just go in there. And like that was the equivalent of like the offense throwing the kitchen sink at somebody. Like, right? Like, like trick plays every other play. That's essentially what they were doing up front. And so we were seeing some things that we don't normally see. And when they're shooting gap, like they had some smaller undersized guys and they realized like, Hey, George pretty big up for us, especially on the interior. We can't hang with them man on man. So we're going to have to shoot gaps. We get really aggressive, twist, stunt, do all that stuff and make them move, confuse them and uh, use our, use our quickness to our advantage, which is exactly what they did. And they were able to blow up some plays doing that. And I would have liked to have seen us try to get the ball to the edges a little bit more. We did that more so in the second half with some success. Then we started getting penalties. We were holding on the edge, and then we had the crackback walk. And I also want to comment how just piss poor SEC officiating is. Oh, my God. The LSU game was a nightmare. That last drive when they called the personal foul on Malik Herring, are you kidding me? Well, I was more angry with the two straight flags on Trey McKinney. I thought those were all complete crap. One of the holdings on McKinney was terrible. But that last drive with Mississippi State was trying to go down there to tie the end, and potentially they probably would have gone for two if they would have scored. I was, so I was freaking out that entire drive. But the personal foul on Herring Malik. was a phantom call. It was a flop. It was, the NBA players have been proud of that. And then the, the non-call, the, the idea that Rodgers was outside the pocket on the intentional grounding, are you kidding me? He backed straight up. He was like barely, barely outside. I mean, the, the whole game, like George was getting raped on that long throw that should have been a flag. Doesn't yeah. call like no, no call really went our way is what frustrated me the most. Um, it just seemed like all the bad calls went miss or like in Mississippi State's favor. Yeah, yeah, and look, and, we, and you can whine about officiating, but like it was. You're right, Curtis. It was, it was terrible. Well, and, was, but I was, yeah. I was more impressed with the way we answered. You know, uh, we. Can get that first down after having two drops, but they call a holding call, which, yeah, it was a holding call. I admit that one was a clear holding call. Yeah, that one But was. the fact that we answered and still threw that long touchdown pass is another thing that was very encouraging yeah, for us, absolutely. for me potentially, because we have not been able to do anything in third and long situation. And look, I'm not trying to completely absolve the offensive line. Yes, a lot of what they were doing, a lot of our issues were related to them stunting and pressuring and doing a lot of different things that we don't normally see from them on tape. But there were also plenty of times where we just got flat out beat and whipped man on man up front in a way that we really haven't seen since game one against Arkansas. I mean, really since that first game, we've steadily improved essentially week in and week out up front to the point where our ground game and our offensive line has become the strength of the team. At least it had become the strength of the team leading up into this game. But we were just uncharacteristically getting beaten far too much one on one up front. A lot of it was stunts, but it, what frustrated me the most is if you were watching the replays, it's just most of the time looked like our offensive linemen were just standing standing around, no clue what to do. Like they were just the play was going on, and they were just standing around, like, "Oh, am I supposed to be blocking someone?" Yeah, it, I think part of that was because they were confused by what they were doing. Um, but there were plenty of plays where, like, man on man, they just got whipped too too many times. And like, and look, like when when the reason. One of the reasons Daniel was able to have so much success, like we mentioned, is because they were they were throwing a lot of single high looks and a lot of zero coverage at us, more so than you ever see. And when that happens, that means there's more guys in the box. They're bringing more pressure. So it's to make the run game harder. They were run blitzing hard. They were bringing guys from uh, from outside. They're bringing cornerbacks. They were doing a lot of things. But still, like it, it was, was not a good enough performance. Now, the defense, I'm not even – I'm not drawing any conclusions about the defense. Like, to me, playing that offense is like defending the old school triple option Georgia Tech – but on the other end of the spectrum, like the, the, the way I, the, what I mean by that is like, we don't, this is what I was saying, like coming into the week, you know, on, on the preview show, like we don't play that way against anyone else on defense. Like when, when, when I told you guys, when I broke down the air raid this past week, one of the reasons that offense is so effective is that you have to play it differently defensively than you play any other team. And they play the same way on offense every week. They're just simply better at what they do on offense than what you do on defense when you play them. And I know people are frustrated. I got a lot of, uh, of feedback on Twitter, people frustrated with the easy completion, sitting back in zone. But guys, that's literally what everyone else has done with them with so much success this year outside of LSU who got torched when they were in man coverage. The difference this week was their freshman quarterback has had a couple of weeks to practice, and he's improved. He's grown more comfortable. And he they did a good job the taking the check down, we'll say. Yeah, exactly. He was accurate, and he made good decisions. Guys, in the first five games of the year, that offense turned the ball over 19 times. 19 times 
in the first five games. Almost four turnovers a game. They didn't turn over one time this game. Now, there was a there was a, a, a pick. A, no, wait a minute, a pick. It might have been a pick six, but at least a pick that Lewis seen drop. There's one that Stevenson had a chance on. But the fact is they didn't turn the ball over in this game. And that's different than what they've been doing all year long. He was accurate. He didn't make bad decisions. And you cannot say that about the quarterback position for them really any other game this year outside of the first game of the year against LSU and LSU trying to just go, go all arrogant on them and play man coverage and got torched doing it. I think the early issue with that offense was just lack of reps in that offense, no spring practice, and that offense is based around execution, and they just didn't have the, the time and the reps to be able to execute at that level. And my, my question would be, okay, so if you're frustrated with the, with the zone coverage, I get that. You're giving the easy completions, but what do you want us to do on defense? When we went to man coverage, you mentioned Mark Webb getting burned, Curtis. That was one of the few times I, I went back and rewatched. I counted seven plays on defense that we were in man coverage. And on that one in particular, we got a little patient, went man coverage there, brought some pressure, and he got torched. And so after that, I think we had one play in man coverage after that. Because why would you go back to it? Was, that's exactly, they want you in man coverage because that's when they get their big plays. They'll, they'll bait you and bait you and bait you with these underneath throws in zone and try to get you impatient to where you just try to force the issue and you go to man and then they hit you with the big plays. So I was I, I I hated the zone, yes, and I think a lot of it had to do with just I think our linebackers were getting a little too much depth on the underneath throws. Was the only thing that I really didn't like about I the think zone. That's fair. I that's thought fair. I thought that I didn't like that, that right away. They're almost dropping ten to fifteen yards, and that's why Mr. State was able to content. You know, I mean, because they weren't going to be beat anywhere else realistically in their drop. So I, that's why I just understand is why we are getting so much debt. I think that's fair. I do think that's a fair criticism. I, I think that the zone defense, the rush three drop eight was the right scheme to take into this game. Because again, every other team that has had so much success against this Mississippi state offense, that's exactly what they've done to slow them down. I mean, again, I mentioned it earlier in the show, this team has not gained 300 yards in a game since October 3rd. So we would have been stupid to come out and do anything other than what all the other defense that have played them have done to hold them under 300 yards for the last month and a half or so, at least the last month. I know that they missed a couple games because of COVID or whatever. But why would we have possibly done anything different? So what if we'd come out in man coverage like LSU and gotten torched? Then they would, all the talk would have been about how idiotic our defensive coaches are for coming out and doing something different than what all the other teams had done that had slowed this attack down. And yeah, when you run that kind of scheme, you're going to give up the underneath routes. You're essentially conceding that to them. You are playing the old cliche of a bend but don't break defense. You're bending. You're going to give up yards. You're going to be able to move down the field. And guys, they've done that at times throughout the year. They just stalled out in the red zone and turned the football over. We were counting on them to turn the football over like they had all year long, right? You give them these plays here, and they take five yards here, three yards there, a couple yards here, a couple yards there, but eventually they turn the ball over. Well, that didn't happen in this game. And Or they get down the red zone and they stall out like they have all year long but that didn't happen in this game either I think they were 37 percent in their touchdown percentage in the red zone coming into this game and they scored touchdowns I think three of the four times they were in the red zone against us this this week that wasn't good enough that wasn't part of the game plan the game plan was okay we're fine giving you that but when we get into the red zone we're going to stone you but we did not do that consistently enough that's where we went wrong now yeah I do think the zone was a little too soft at times I think that is a fair criticism maybe what I would have liked to have seen I I, I don't mind the, the Rush three, drop eight. I think that was the right strategy because, again, that's what's worked all year. Even go back to when Leach was at Washington State, that's how Jimmy Lake, the defense coordinator at Washington, now head coach at Washington, that's how he stopped them. Rush three, drop eight, and you take away the space for them to operate with. But I would have liked to have seen us maybe do some more pattern matching type stuff. If you guys aren't familiar with what pattern matching is, it's basically the equivalent to like matchup zone in basketball. If maybe you're more familiar with that, it's, it's kind of the best of both worlds, the best of zone and man. Basically, you're playing a zone, your defender is playing a zone, but whoever comes into that zone, you play them man coverage. So you're you're in this area, but whoever's in your area, you're playing them in man until they leave your area and you pass them off to somebody else. Because far too often we were sitting in these zones and we were just like, if a guy was like, you know, a foot away from us, from from one of our defenders, they would just kind of just sit there and let and let them complete the ball and wait for them to catch it and then rally and tackle, which we did a really good job of. But we just weren't playing them tight enough. You don't play them too tight, but I think we need to probably play them a little tighter than we did. And Kirby actually has a background of playing some like cover three pattern match stuff, so I was surprised maybe we didn't see a little bit more of that. But again, I don't necessarily fault them for doing what everyone else has done against them defensively to such great effect. 
I mean, it was just a couple weeks ago, too, guys, by the way, that everyone was screaming at our defensive coaches for not playing more zone against Florida. We were playing so much man coverage, which is what we do traditionally. That's, one of the, again, one of the reasons that we had, I don't want to say had trouble playing against Mississippi State defensively, but we were playing a system that's entirely foreign to what we do. We are very much a press man scheme defensively where we want to get in your face and make it difficult for you to complete a pass and to eliminate windows. So we were basically doing the opposite of that. So it was a very different foreign scheme for us. But uh, think back to the Florida game where we were playing that and they were hurting us with all their pick plays. Well, you know what, guys? You know who's basically one of the forerunners of the modern pick play? Oh, yeah, Mike Leach. Probably the, the most defining play of his air raid offense is the mesh. The mesh play, which is essentially, I don't say the original pick play, but like the pick play that really popularized pick and rub routes. So if you play a bunch of man coverage against them, of course they saw what Florida did to us with pick plays and rub routes and all that. And they're, they were certainly going to be doing a lot more of that. And so it's just, it's one of those things that's kind of frustrating. It's, it was just two short weeks ago that people were, were killing our coaches on defense for not going to more zone because we were getting killed in man. Uh, because of what they were running with those pick plays and, and the rub routes and whatnot. And yet here we are coming in this game where we don't want to allow it to happen because that's one of the things that they use to great effect offensively, all those pick plays and rub routes. So we play zone and now everyone's screaming, no, we shouldn't have been playing zone, we should have been playing man. It's like, well, that's two. the last two games we've heard something different from fans complaining. We played too much man coverage against Florida, too much zone coverage against Mississippi State. It's almost like the coaches can't win. And look, the fact is we held them to 358 total yards. Yes, that's more yards they've had since, what, October 3rd. But the quarterback is much more proficient now. He's had more time in the system. He's actually the guy now. Uh, he wasn't the guy early in the year. He's kind of going back and forth between him and KJ Costello. This guy's been the guy for a couple weeks now. He's, I know they haven't played a ton of games in the past couple weeks, but he's had time to rep and practice, become more familiar with the offense, become more confident, be coached up in the film sessions and all that kind of stuff. So he was just, this was a better version of the Mississippi State offense, a more effective and more efficient version that executed at a higher rate than what they've been doing the past couple of weeks. So ultimately, I don't really have much of an issue with what we did. Actually, I don't have any issue at all with what we did defensively. I would have liked for us to play better in the red zone, that would have been great. It would have been nice to force a couple of turnovers when Lewisine has a, an interception right in his hands and he drops it. It'd be nice to actually force those turnovers and make those plays. But schematically, I think we did what we should have done coming into this game. And they, they did what, what we wanted them to do. We wanted them to take those short intermediate routes and, uh, and force them to go the length of the field. And they did it more often than we probably thought they would. And they did it more often than we would have liked them to. But that's what you've got to do. You don't want to give those give up those big plays. You want to force them to go the length of the field, which is what we did. And they just happen to execute. This offense is about execution. All offenses are about execution. But this offense is more so built on that than anything else. Um, so we forced them to do that and got tip, their cap, tip your cap to them. They execute down the field. But I, I don't think that we really had the wrong scheme going in this game. That's just me. That's just me. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UJ podcast. Of course, there's a ton of stuff that we didn't have a chance to touch on today. So that's what our mailbag episodes are for. So if you have any questions on anything that we have not touched on, or even some things that we might discuss today, if you have more questions on those, please feel free to send us questions for our mailbag this week. You can hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can also email those questions to us at glorygapodcast at gmail.com, and we will get to as many of those questions as we possibly can. But thanks for listening, guys. It's nice to at least in some small way get that sour taste out of our mouth from that loss a couple weeks ago. And uh, we'll be moving forward. Hopefully get another win this weekend. We'll have you guys covered all during the week, during Thanksgiving. We'll probably even have an episode for you guys on Thanksgiving Day if you're driving somewhere to celebrate Thanksgiving with your family. Hope everyone stays safe. But hopefully we'll have some content for you guys to listen on the way. But uh, have a great, safe week, guys. We will be back later on in the week. Send us all your mailbag questions. For Curtis, I'm Tyler. As always, go dogs.